Welcome to Coffee and Geography, where my guests and I geek out about the world and everything on it, discovering that we are all geographers in some way, shape or form. I'm your host, Kit, and my pronouns are they, them or she, her. So settle down with a brew, hit that subscribe or follow button and enjoy the listen. Hi everybody and welcome back to Coffee and Geography and yes I'm really excited to talk to this person there's going to be a topic coming up a few topics coming up which which I think are going to be so interesting and quite surprising I think the whole thing is going to be like almost like a spill the beans kind of thing so uh, I've joined by Jessica Log. hello Jessica how are you doing this morning? Hello, I'm all right. I'm slightly worried that you've overhyped um, <laughs> the encounter, but um, I'm plodding along on the face of the <laughs> Um Yeah, uh, the good news is, Jessica, for you is that is that any re- regular listeners I do have, hope, wishful thinking, but any regular listeners I do know that the hype, I, I, it's people like, kid, you're such a hyper, you hype so everything the, up. The MC so. of geography. <laughs> the MC of geography. I've never been called that before. <laughs> oh, bless. Okay, so to introduce Jessica, Jessica is a biology graduate, former communications officer for BirdLife International. That's pretty cool. And currently editorial assistant and educational publisher. Uh, Jessica is a science communicator who worked for a global environmental organization for several years. Also a musician of the and author of the popular sing-along children's book, A Hole in the Bottom of the Sea. Um, and this has entertained children worldwide with gruesome insights into the marine food chain. Uh, Jessica's other achievements include reaching the finals of the World Snail Racing Championship. That's what's uh, coming up, folks. Entering a song about eels in the Eurofishian Song Contest. <laughs> That's the first time I've read that out loud. Um, doing a stand-up routine about ornithology and due to misunderstanding about the vibe of the event, attending the British Bird Watching Fair dressed as a flamingo. <laughs> See, I don't have to hype anything up, Jessica. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose not when you put it like that. Oh, amazing. Uh, I, I really, I, I mean, now I really need to talk about what you're drinking. But, you know, um, on the back of that, <laughs> please tell me you're drinking just standard coffee. <laughs> uh, I've got some chai. I've got some masala chai um, oh. from Sanger's Supermarket in Wolverhampton. Um, which as far as I know is the only place you can get it and it's the best chai I think it's imported from India and it's it's the anything even close is like 10 pounds from a health shop and it's not as good Mm. um so this is interesting this is the best yeah I I got into yeah I got into drinking um Assam tea for a a quite a fair bit after talking to the Indian actor Adil Hussain and Ah. like I just, I just, oh, it was gorgeous. And it's just like, because what happened, we were talking and his his, his wife, bless him, like, come and brought him a cup of tea while they were talking to me. And he said, oh, it's not very coffee and geography kit, but my, I've got a tea and a psalm tea. And he showed me like all the, it was like, oh, it looks so gorgeous and golden. And so I yes, went for a period of drinking that. So, yes. Because uh, he was from Golpara where, the, where they where they grow the stuff. So, Oh, my colleague um, went there and brought back loads of... Oh, it's so nice. But, I, yeah, it's every time I go home to Wolverhampton, me and my dad just go to the, the Sanger supermarket and get hundreds and hundreds of boxes of this tea because you can't get it anywhere else. Well, dozens. Um, yeah. And uh, But, yeah, if I were to have coffee, I would just die. So <laughs> it has to be mild, just something mild. Fair enough. Fair enough. So you mentioned then you're from Wolverhampton, but you're currently in Cheltenham. So 
Right. So um, were you born and bred wolves? Yes. It's, um, I found it a really fascinating place. It's only when I, I moved away and then went back again as an adult that I, I realised how fascinating it is because it's, uh, now nowadays it's a sort of a post-industrial wasteland mm. um you know the it doesn't get much investment and it, it doesn't get much attention um but it was literally the birthplace of the industrial revolution so um beneath the ground there's um a lot of uh deposits of of um well fossil a lot of fossil deposits there's the dudley bug from uh down the road, which is a trilobite, uh, which is um, which is named after the the town it was discovered in. Um, but there's loads of so there's there's these rich limestone deposits full of fossils, and there's also a lot of coal from the fossilized mm. vegetation, and that's what kick started the industrial revolution. And the first ever steam engine was tested out. Um, in the Black Country near Wolverhampton. Um, it's called the Black Country because of all the coal dust that just covered all the buildings and the smog from the factories. And it just, it's its almost like some mythical land. It's, it's hard to explain. Um, but when they first tested out this, um, it, this steam engine, the very first steam engine, it wasn't a high pressure steam engine that you would use to power a train, um, it was um, a low-pressure atmospheric steam engine, which was used to power a pump. So it was to pump water out of uh, coal mines. And ah. this made coal mining way more efficient because flooding was one of the main things which hampered them and held them back through centuries. Um, and so this is what kick-started the Industrial Revolution and where there's lots of coal, there's going to be lots of smelting, lots of steelworks, and so it it all just just grew from there. And so that was it was really so it's it, again it's this is you just see geography everywhere because it's it's the geology of the the rock and the land, and it's the archaeology of the the dinosaurs and the fossil plants. And and then that creates the history of the Industrial Revolution and it just links everything together, mm. um, which is why I love it. It's because it's geography just pervades every area of life. Yeah. So w- would you say that there is, there's um, anything about that area, the black country, that, that still lives with you now that you're living pretty much, you know, near, near Bristol in Cheltenham? So is there still a, still a bit of that, that black country part of you that you've brought in your identity is when you speak to people or you talk about home or you're comparing your you know the people who've always lived in Cheltenham is there anything that kind of crops up well it's it's the people are really nice it's a really multicultural area which I think adds a a great deal um it's the people are really friendly and really talkative and I think everybody's a little bit eccentric and they're, they're not ashamed of that. They're not pretentious. They're not trying to, um, you know, be, you know, they're not trying to be super sensible. They're, they're just, you know, there's a, there's a lot of creativity and a lot of eccentricity um, in the city. And I just think that the, the people are great, but 
the city deserves more, basically. It deserves mm, more investment. Yeah. It deserves more opportunities for people living there. Um, and so I definitely think that sort of eccentric creative spirit and that sort of friendliness and just, just I'm terrible. I'll just talk to anyone. <laughs> it's really bad. Uh, and I'll just be sitting... I don't know, on a bus and start randomly talking to someone. I'm one of those obnoxious <laughs> people. Um, so I definitely Aww. think that approach I've, I've brought with me. Um, and the Aww. history the history stays with me as well. It's just fascinating. Yeah. Um, oh, that's so wonderful. Yeah, and you're not actually... I, I can't remember who I spoke to um, on the podcast before, but you're, you're, yeah, you're the second person to have mentioned you know, the area of, of, of wars and, and its history and, and its... And its a bit of um yeah a bit of a bit of a hole in terms of it's not getting the love and the care and the attention it deserves because it does sound like it's got such a well it has a vibrant history and a vibrant culture and it needs it's just been yeah it's just interesting isn't it how geographically places do get neglected you know and we have the the overheating of london you know all the investment coming down in the south and the southeast or then we've got this bipolar thing where you get so much investment investment being put in place like manchester and liverpool and this kind of zone in the middle seems to be forgotten about well it's um oh i can't remember his name but i was speaking to um a, a performance poet actually from the midlands and he was saying that it's almost like it, it's a kind of place where people don't even even believe that it's real because right, they, yeah. they just think that there's the north and the south and anything above i don't know Cambridge is the north and anything below is the south and there's not yeah. you know it's and it doesn't even exist um and it's like oh thanks a lot <laughs> yeah yeah I'm and there's from, been many jokes about it yeah I'm from the land of nowhere yeah yeah uh, there's um a very good uh a channel that I recommend to students and geography teachers called map men uh it's, it's, oh, a, it's a comedy men, channel map but, men, yeah map, exactly map, map, man, man. Men, uh, and they're absolutely hilarious. And there's this one they talk about the north-south divide, which is absolutely hilarious. And um, and they go, so yeah, the north is where blah blah blah, and they have all these like stereotypes. North and the south is where people say you know um, mahogany a lot or something like that. And then you've got this place apparently that exists called the Midlands. Ha 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 ha. And then that's it. They just move on. It's like yeah, and it's like I'm not allowed to <laughs> be from there. Like right. <laughs> somebody from the north is like, oh no, you're not northern, and someone from the south is like, oh, you're not. Oh, yeah, it's in fact, folks, it's this is true, right? And my 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 wife, who's from America, like laughed hard when she saw this. But if you're in the south of the UK, right, and you get on one of the major motorways like the M1 or something like that, it actually says on the signs the north. The right? north. And then when you're up on the other end of the yeah, and when you're on the other end of the M1, you know, like uh, up that end, it will actually say you know south M1 south um, the south, you know. <laughs> <laughs> even our road signs play into that it so, makes uh, it seem like some forbidden land yes mystical forbidden land stuck in the middle of neverwhere <laughs> well it, um apparently the midlands inspired tolkien um when he was writing lord of the rings um mordor was inspired by wolverhampton and the, the black country no yes and um the uh, Shropshire, which is the county right next to the Black Country, um, was what inspired the Shire. And then there's even a bit at the end of Lord of the Rings where 
they go back to the Shire and it's all been industrialized and and so it's sort of it's it's because he grew up sort of near Birmingham and the Midlands and so it's this it's really yeah. it really sort of you can see it if you know you know you can really see it in the books uh, you know what, folks? I don't. I don't plan this. These coincidences at all. But but the 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 guest, my last guest last week, we had a good chat about the Lord of the Rings because she's a she's a Tolkien nut, and um and I showed her we've got a book here that's called The Atlas of Middle Earth, um and uh, I fully recommend anybody gets that. It's if you're a geography and a fancy geek, like it's so good. But yeah, that's, that's just another little tidbit. I mean, this is almost turning into a Lord of the Rings podcast um, <laughs> if we're not careful. There's so. a, another thing which is has been heavily contested, but near where Tolkien um, lived um, when he was growing up in the Midlands, there were two towers, and they were <laughs> they were industrial towers. <laughs> there were these you know big chimney pipes from nearby factories, but um, it has been um, it has been posited that they they inspired. The, I think we go we're sort of going a bit too far there, though. <laughs> Interesting. Um, I want to uh, look at just have a quick chat about something that you mentioned here, which which I find really really amazing. So it so you mentioned um, you mentioned London um, a few minutes ago, and the things that go on underground in in the uh, the black country and stuff like that. And you said that that during the pandemic, you became obsessed with Victorian stink pipes, which is the infrastructure left over from Joseph uh, uh, Bazalgette's nineteenth century sewer. Bazalgette, thank I you think. for correcting me. Bazalgette or Basil, yeah, nineteenth uh, century sewage system. Um, and I did not know this. I did not know this, but there are some things that look like lampposts but they're actually to do with these sewers that and these lampposts to help relieve flammable gases can you tell us a bit about that yes. what drew your obsession because this is just fascinating yes well um it was uh, it, so the the person i was with at the time was playing pokemon go and <laughs> the uh, the pokey st- i don't know anything about it but apparently the pokey stops are um at local landmarks and somebody uh, we were living in Cambridge at the time and somebody had labeled up all all the stink pipes as pokey stocks and we were he looked at this and he's like what are stink pipes there's one right side outside our door and so we ran out of the house um, amazing and and we just glanced and it, it was just there and I'd walked past it every day for more than two years and I hadn't given it a second glance and it was like stepping into an alternate reality where there were these things that had always been there and we'd never noticed them. So what they are, um, basically, um, I think you might know about the Great Stink and this was Mm. something that happened in London um, in the sort of 18th, 19th century. Um, at the time, I believe there were open sewers, um, sort of gutters running through the streets. People pour their waste into these. It'd all go into the Thames. And the the richer people actually would literally leave London for the summer season because, because of the great right. stink. And that in, impacted society for years because even after it was fixed, the social season was still in winter because that's when all the politicians and all the leaders and all the rich people came back to London. 
And then summer was more of a sort of a holiday season where there weren't so many social events. And that that carried on for, huh. for a really long time into the 20th century. Um, and there, I think there's probably still some hangovers from that. But um, in order to fix this, because people were getting cholera and they were getting, you know, terribly ill. Um, so Joseph Bazalgette um, decided to invent an underground sewage system, um, which was really successful. It, it fixed so many problems. Um, but uh, one problem that arose was the fact that there were these dangerous gases such as methane that were mm. created underground. They were created from all the waste and the rotting um, sort of matter. And, and they were creating these gases that were actually incredibly flammable. And if anything... <laughs> If I, I mean, I, I'm sure they were told not to, but if a sewage worker, for example, lit a cigarette down there, or if, um, uh, or if, if there was some some spark, something just naturally set alight, um, it would cause these huge explosions. And so uh, they developed um, these. They were very, very tall pipes called stink pipes, and they went right down underground into the sewers. And then they're extremely tall and they go right up um, oh, yeah. way. They're really tall, way above street level. And the reason... Above, that, above the height of houses, because I'm looking yeah. at a picture of one here. Yeah. yeah. The reason for that is nobody wants to smell that stench. They, you know, that. so it, it was um, to let off the, the gases to sort of vent them off into the atmosphere, um, which worked. And in fact, a lot of them are still in use today because we still need that to happen. Wow. Um, and one of the great things is that they were used as gas lamps. So, um, and they would be fueled from the stink, from the gases. <laughs> um, and so they just, um, and I think there are a few remaining ones that are still stench fueled gas lamps in London. Um, but wow. most, most of them have been sawn off and they're simply, you know, they're simply stink pipes now. But if you look at them, you if ev they're everywhere. They're, you know, I've seen them in loads of different towns. When I went home to Wolverhampton to visit, I realised that there was one sort of right near my house that I'd I'd walked past my entire life, um, <laughs> but, but I just hadn't noticed it. And they're quite ornate. They've got these sort of. Um, fluted um bases with some sort of or ornate patterns on them a lot of them yeah um and they they do look victorian when you actually notice them um so look out look out for the stink pipes and you too can step into an alternate reality <laughs> of forgotten victorian infrastructure <laughs> uh, and you know what's so beautiful about this as well is that you started this by saying i was with a friend who was playing pokemon go <laughs> and so it just goes to show folks you all right i'm now reevaluating whether i can let my kids do this because actually it could be very educational for them <laughs> it i genuinely think that it it can be like i mean yeah. I'm, I'm not interested in it at all but it's it's almost like a meta it's augmented reality, which I find so yeah. fascinating because it's the real world with the virtual supplanted on top of it. And I, we found out loads of stuff. We learned loads about local landmarks and it sort of got 
got us out because I'm always like, let's go for a walk, let's go for a walk. I'm a really sort of quite hyper, hence why I can't, <laughs> I can't have coffee. Um, but it, it encourages people who wouldn't normally like to go for a walk to, to get out and, and go for a walk. And yeah. So that was, um, it was really, and it, <laughs> in fact, um, I used to be a, a tour guide at the Black Country Living Museum which is like a, a real village from the past where you can go into all the old-fashioned shops and houses and things. Um, and there was a pokey stop in there. No, a gym. It was a Pokemon gym. And I honestly think it increased footfall. It encouraged children to come oh, wow. with it. So it's, <laughs> I don't know. I think it has... And also it's fun. And I think whatever gives you joy can't, and doesn't yeah. hurt anyone, surely that can't be a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I I agree. I agree. Well, let's let's go from one speed of uh, making progress, walking with our legs, to another speed of making very much less progress. I'm trying to have a very seg a segue here, and it's I don't think it's working. And that is uh, the pace of snails. <laughs> that was a terrible segue, Kit. I'm still going to run with it. Um, well, I don't you even are... bother with a segue. Often I just jump from one topic to another at a, you know, <laughs> back-breaking speed. So, you know, you've, you've <laughs> beat me there. So, Jessica, what is this obsession with snails? And a snail racing, world snail racing championship? Yes. <laughs> Tell us more. This is, I'm, I'm missing. I'm all, I'm all, well, I know snails don't have ears or do they? No, they don't have ears. So I'm not. Well, what would I say if if I was a snail? I wouldn't say I'm all ears. What would I, what would I say instead? You're all foot. Um, all foot. You're all foot. <laughs> yeah, snails um, are a part of uh, a group of mollusks called gastropods, which actually means belly-footed, um, because their foot is a, a, across, you know, along their belly, um, and they're basically their the whole of their body that isn't in the shell. Uh, most of it's this muscular foot and it acts like a conveyor belt. It's really interesting if you watch the snails um, when it's raining. I love watching the snails um, crawl up my glass window and um, and you can actually see the waves of um, muscle contractions moving from the tail to the head. And it sort of it sort of makes them... It's really hard to explain, but that's what makes them glide along. Um, it's this, this conveyor belt of muscle contractions. Um, and I I can't quite work out why they're moving from its tail to its head. Like, you would think it would, it would move from its head to its tail, but I, I can't work that out in my head. But apparently that's, yeah. So they're, they're belly-footed, um, and they... I think it's quite impressive that they manage to go along at even at the speed they do, because if I had to just lie on my front and sort of <laughs> wiggle along, I wouldn't get anywhere. So, you know, I, yeah. congratulations to them, I say. So, so, but, but do you, you've, uh, so when you did this, uh, the, the world snail racing check, was it because you're like, I've got to do this because of my love of snails. And did you yes. have a snail? Did, was it, was it, did you have, was it a name? What name did it have? Did, did you paint the shell? I, I have no idea what goes on in the snail racing competition. Okay. Well, I did regional heats 
Um, so I collected a selection of likely looking snails from around my house the night <laughs> before. The, yeah, honestly, the night before the competition. And I did my own snail race on the kitchen table with, with, you know, a safe cover over it. Don't worry. Um, and, uh, and so I, I sort of, yeah, I, I did regional heats and I, I got the fastest four snails from that heat now the problem was that I accidentally got the size of the course wrong. So I ended up selecting a lot of young snails, which are very fast for a short distance, but they don't have that muscle and that stamina. So when I took them to the race, the race was twice as long. Um, and if you if you look at pictures of it, the race, it's actually in a circle because you can't make a snail go in a straight line. Um, and so you, it's almost like a dart. It, it's painted like a dartboard. So you put the snails in the centre, oh, okay. all facing outwards, and then they race to the edges of the um, of the table around which we've placed um, lettuce leaves. So that's the way to get them to to go in a line. And basically, the first snail to reach the outer edge is the winner. But it's really there's. Oh, there were so many fouls. Like one snail climbed onto the back of one of my other snails and actually like turned, held onto his shell and turned him round. And so he was like <laughs> facing the opposite direction. And it was just, they were, some of them were trying to reproduce on the race course. It was just absolute bedlam. Um, but I, I had a prize winning snail um, called Moby. And he was called uh-huh. Moby because he was actually the um, leukistic form of a garden snail. So in nature, um, you just like in, in humanity, you can have brunettes and you can have blondes. Um, so the, the leukistic form is, it's not an albino, but it's a paler uh, form than the one you most commonly find. Mm-hmm. So Moby had... Um, this sandy coloured shell and he had this sort of cream coloured um, body uh, and so we called him Moby af- after Moby Dick, the white whale Moby Dick, you know, yeah. the, the white snail um, and he was so good, he was only little, only young, I thought he was going to not have any stamina just like like in the older snails were going to beat him but he was constantly winning the heats, he got into the finals and somebody from Oxford actually came to the race and we were in Cambridge at the time. And so we had the first Oxford and Cambridge varsity oh. snail race, which Moby won. And yeah. it, so it, I was so proud of him. And it was only when I was setting them all free at the end of the day that I realised um, <laughs> the reason he was winning all these races, he was probably just trying to get out of the sun. Oh, so, no. I, I was I'd been torturing this poor snail all day. Oh. I felt so guilty, but um, yeah, he was probably just hurrying to get out of the sun. But um, oh. they do they treat the snails very nicely. Um, at, so the this event it's uh, in a little village in Suffolk, and it's it's just a, a local whimsical event to raise money for charity, but it's just people people just love the idea and so it you know this was before it hasn't been reinstated since the pandemic but oh. people 
it just really captured the public imagination. We had people from miles around coming. We had the BBC um, coming to interview people. And I was on um, national television uh, talking about <laughs> snails, dressed as a snail. I forgot to say I was I was dressed as a snail. So I had this oh, little hat with antenna coming out of it. Um <laughs> But, you know, you've got to, if you're going to go to the World Snail Racing Championships, you've got to commit, haven't you? Um, yeah. <clears throat> and they treat the snails very nicely. So they, you know, you, they're, you know you, they're not captive snails. You, you're encouraged to capture them on the morning of the race and release them into the wild at the end of the day. And you, um, they're all native snails, so there's not going to be any problems with disease. Um, and then they spray the surface of the the race course so it's this very very damp cloth which is very easy and pleasant for the snails because they love the damp and they yes they get that's why they all come out after yeah. rain and yeah, yeah exactly um and so that's it it was you know it was nice for the snails and they were very nicely treated and it was just a lovely happy fun atmosphere nice oh so i just looked up where so the village of lavenheath um, yes, that's right. It, yeah, is uh, and actually, it's only it's only a, a forty minute drive from where I live at the moment. So if they ever reinstate it, I'm going to have to go and take a look. Me too. Uh, I was distraught when I found out that it wasn't on after the pandemic. <laughs> oh, oh wow, that is so cool. Hi folks, a chance for you to recharge your brew, but also a polite prod to remind you that it's so easy to support this podcast. Simply liking, sharing, rating and reviewing means that it will get on more people's radar. Also, there are a few links down in the description which may be of mutual benefit. Please do check them out. So uh, you also have a love for, for eels and birds as well. Yes, I, I've well. I've seen you read here. Yes, I think the birds thing is more a case of Stockholm syndrome. Um, okay. So I had, um, I didn't have much of an interest in birds before I I started working for a bird charity. Um, I almost felt as if they were the popular kids of the nat- natural world, um, <laughs> because you know they're really flashy and they're really beautiful and they're really easy to spot and everyone loves them and you know and I was thinking. Oh, they're so overrated. What do they actually do that's interesting? And then when you learn about them, they, you know, they they're pretty interesting mm. creatures. Um, there's yeah. a kind of bird called it, my fave is the megapode. I mean, firstly, it's called a megapode. I mean, how can? You, um, and it lives on the um, volcanic islands in Micronesia, and it actually incubates its eggs on volcanoes so oh wow it digs a hole in volcanic ash and it lays its egg and then it sort of builds a mound of volcanic ash over this egg and then it just buggers off and does its you know does its thing i I respect that you know um and then um Hmm. and so it's like a real life phoenix because the egg gets incubate incubated by volcanic fire. And then another thing is that um, the chick, when it hatches, is precocial, which means it hatches in um, a very advanced D 
developmental stage. So it's basically like a small adult. So it hatches and it literally flies out of the egg. It flies from the ashes. Wow. And it's incubated by fire. It That's a phoenix. If that's not a phoenix, I don't know what is. Um, so when, is when, cool. when you learn things like that, you really, you know, and it's, and, you know, other megapodes, they um, incubate their eggs using rotting vegetation and the heat that well, that makes creates. sense. Yeah. And yeah. they're actually very clever. They go and put on more vegetation or take more off uh, to regulate the temperature. That's so clever. You know, they're really sort of, they're on it. Um, That's pretty clever. So I, yeah, I, I love, yeah, I, I like them now. <laughs> I have to. Yeah. It. Um, yeah. And also birds, um, they're a really good example of how geography and biology interact. Um, mm. Because a lot of bird species, I, I think around 50% of bird species migrate. And I was really shocked to learn that. I, I thought, you know, I knew about the, the swallows and the swifts and a, a few bird species, but most, well, not most, but a really big proportion of bird species migrate. Um, and the way that they do so is very linked to geography. So yeah. birds, they don't just all get up and fly in a straight line to where they want to get to. They actually migrate along set routes uh, called mm. flyways and these are um, loads of different bird species they all congregate and they all migrate together along these set flyways and the reason for these flyways is often geographical um, so for example a lot of birds they don't want to migrate over the sea because mm-hmm. um, especially for large soaring birds, such as eagles and storks, um, birds that really rely on the thermals and the updraft yeah. to keep them gliding, they, they don't ha- get the same thermals on over the sea. So they really hate migrating over the sea because they actually have to make an effort to flap their wings. Um, and so, um, so they migrate along um, land. And then you get places like the Panama Gap, and the the Medina Strait um, yeah. between Spain and Algeria, where there's this tiny, tiny gap of sea, and these huge numbers of birds get funneled through this gap um, because they just do not want to migrate over the sea. Um, but unfortunately, that can cause um, problems because uh, recreational hunters. They yes, yeah. they flock to the area along with the birds, and and there's you mm. know there's loads of birds to hunt, and so that can cause um, birds to become endangered if they all migrate through the same small gap mm. and hunters shoot them. Then you know the whole of a species is going through this one area. Right, you're yeah. going to get a huge proportion of that species of bird lost. So yeah. it's it you know it, it's it really interacts um loads of different ways and there's also um another thing that flyways that why they go along flyways is because of the rest stops so most birds don't migrate in one fell swoop um they they stop along the way at suitable habitats and so you have these linked chains of suitable hunting grounds and feeding grounds and resting grounds Mm. where they can refuel 
And then if something happens to that habitat, <clears throat> you just, you know, you, you, yeah. if something happens to that habitat, then a link in the chain has been broken. They might not be able to get to the next rest stop because they're so exhausted. And um, the red knot, I think it lo it loses something crazy like 50% of its body weight um, during migration because it wow. gorges, it gorges on food at the start. And then, it, you know, it, and so if a bird is in that sort of, it's so, it's so, the line between survival and starvation is so narrow that the loss of one feeding site can can mm. cause them to starve, and it's it's yeah. really and that's that's happened where like um, the red knot, um, using that as an example, they like to eat horseshoe crab eggs, um, and then one time, for some reason, possibly climate change the horseshoe crabs arriving at their rest stop on their beach, that didn't coincide with the red knots arriving there. Right. It was out of sync. And so the red knots didn't get their, um, they didn't get their, their horseshoe crab eggs. And it caused this huge plummet in the number of red knots. I think it was something like a 25% plummet in, in red knot numbers that year because they, yeah. they didn't get the, uh, the food they needed. So, yeah. It's it's really it's all linked. It's all birds are birds are global animals. And yep. the reason why the organization I worked for, BirdLife International, existed is because you can't protect a bird in one country and then right. like yep. let it get shot or starved or, or something in another country. You have to link all the bird charities together and mm. and get them to coordinate their actions and get them to sort of work with each other to make sure that these birds mm. that move really wide ranging animals, that they're all, they're protected across the whole world. So uh, by the end, I was like, yeah, this, this is okay. This is inspiring. <laughs> yeah, I admit it. <laughs> Another thing is that birds use geographical landmarks to migrate and I think plenty of people know about the sun and the stars and birds navigate by, you know, skies. Uh, some birds have um, ferric ions in their beaks. So little molecules of, of actual iron, um, which allows them to detect the Earth's magnetic fields, which is pretty cool. Um, but um, another thing is the way pigeons migrate. Uh, which I think is really cool because you've got homing pigeons and they, how do they find their home? How do they return home? And one of the main ways they do it is actually by smell. Um, and an example that I learned in my degree is, um, so say that a pigeon's loft where it lived was, uh, I don't know, it was half a mile away from a chocolate factory <laughs> and it was two miles away from, oh, I don't know, what's something else smelly? A soap factory. <laughs> um, so what it would do is that it would uh, use the gradient of those two smells um, and the proportion of them in comparison to each other to, to navigate from it to its home. So like it would follow the smell of the, the chocolate factory 
And then huh. it'd be like, oh, but I, I haven't reached the smell of the soap factor yet. And then... So, so it's like, that's, that's too chocolatey. I'm a little bit too far west. Or that's too soapy. I'm a little bit too far east. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and where it's like very chocolatey and a little bit soapy, that's where their um, their loft is going to be. So it's it's just... Huh. Um, it's just, they are cool. I will admit it. They're like nothing else does that. Nothing else ranges that far a, a, apart from perhaps the European eel. Um, mm. But yeah, that's, wow. that's another. That's another kettle of fish. That's another. Yeah, uh, that's that was so lovely to listen to. And you know, for folks, one of the reasons why we do this podcast is to not necessarily prove, but to appreciate that that what geography is it is this such this massive interconnecting intersectional interdisciplinary thing which testifies to the connectivity of our world you know between the human world the physical world the biological world everything and that you cannot interfere with one little piece or protect one little piece without considering how it's all interconnected so um that was just a beautiful example of of that especially with the migratory birds and and i've i am um, on the bird life international website i've noticed as well actually they actually do have the this 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 high this global highway map of the flyways so you can actually see it's like these are like the main the, if you would like the major motorways of the, of migratory birds and and you're right how they how they they really do stick very, very close to either the edge of the continents or, or you know, they're flying, they're skipping over the Caribbean islands and over, over the Panama Canal. And yeah, it's, um, it's, it's fascinating. It just gives you that sense of appreciation that, but I, I like to think of it as, a, as some hope because when people say, what can I do? Or we're just a small community, a small group. We can't do anything. We don't have a bigger impact on the global scale. Well, hang on folks. If, if, if what Jessica's just said about birds and how everything is interconnected and there you know it has this global impact then the same will be true for human beings as well don't ever think that your personal actions your local actions cannot have ramifications positively in a global scale oh absolutely so, this this is something yeah. that i i really believe in because um when when i was working for an environmental organization one of the biggest frustrations wasn't people denying climate change it wasn't people i mean that is a pretty big frustration yes <laughs> it <Yeah>. wasn't people <laughs> ignoring the facts it was people just despairing and just saying yeah. oh we're doomed the world's doomed there's nothing that that we can do and it's like hello we're right here like what what am i doing my job for then like we're right exactly. here my colleagues yep. have saved entire species they've saved entire forests you know there's we're working with communities across the entire world who are restoring their habitats who have regulating and, and stopping hunting and changing their behavior and and it's like oh well what do we do what's all this effort for then if we're doomed thanks a lot mate yes exactly <laughs> and yeah that, and the, that attitude actually i know that it's hard to try to be optimistic but especially how, when the media often spins things in a negative way to get people mm. to sit up and take notice and to get politicians to act like, but you, you know, there are definitely things you can do. And I saw that working for an environmental organization and, you know, for example, entire countries are switching to renewable energy. Um, I think it's, um, I th I've got this written down somewhere. 
Iceland and Uruguay um, generate almost 100% of their electricity from renewable energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they can do it, then why shouldn't we? And, you know, governments and energy companies, they're, they're already investing a lot more in renewable energy. It's one of the sort of the fastest growing industries around. And, you know, it, 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 they, they say that um, as a very rough estimate, the amount that it would cost to, you know, to slow climate change and to to hopefully halt climate change um, is about the same as the soft drinks industry. Um, and it's like, <laughs> well, that's surprised. a tangible thing. That's it. I mean, yep. the soft drinks industry is pretty big, but that's t- a tangible thing that yeah. you can see how much that would cost. And I mean, governments have invested millions of, of dollars in, in helping their economies to recover from covid um i think last year they they promised over 13 trillion dollars worldwide to sort of reignite oh, their economies yeah and if if they can do that post covid then they can do that you know to save the environment it's it's when you actually look at the numbers and they are big numbers but they're also you know reachable numbers and it is possible and it I, mm. I can't really explain it it's like no it's, I, I totally you, get you it makes it seem possible and yeah. it is possible and if even if the world ends and even if it all goes to pop wouldn't you rather have tried to do something about it and wouldn't you yeah. rather have been optimistic and hopeful rather than just spending your your life in doom and gloom and inaction so yeah, yeah I, I think Maybe there's not enough emphasis in the media on things that people can do, um, you know, and there's there's lots of things they can do, you know, there's recycling and stuff, but there's also like, is, does, is your bank, does your bank invest in fossil yep. fuels or maybe yep. you should switch to a bank that, that doesn't do that, that invests in renewable energy um, and things like, are, are you going to your climate march? Because it's, you know, it's the big, it's the governments and it's the big companies that are responsible for a vast majority of this yeah. you know global warming and and so are you going to climate marches are you adding your voice you know and so it's things like that are, are you buying a lot of fast fashion maybe maybe don't do that yeah <laughs> another know? link to last episode as well, well is it to ellie ah. yeah so uh but i've yeah, because this is this is my you know this is my day job talking about you know climate change i've been on the radio a few times and and um try to come you know and i and in the past when i was combating climate denial it's you're very very you're absolutely spot on it's now more i'm trying to combat the narrative of climate doomism and um and i i i, I demonstrate every single time i do these kind of things where i do talks or do radio and stuff like that i say look the the evidence the science does paint a very bleak picture but you've got to look you know about what every single effort can achieve and uh, one of the main messages that i show is um is that yes, the climate is changing to a new state within my lifetime, but within my children's lifetime and most certainly my grandchildren's lifetime, if they, if if I ever have any, we have the possibility of having a new stable climate that is a lot safer than the potential we could head for. And having a stable climate gives us all, it gives us as humans, it gives it gives nature, it gives us the time 
to to start living resiliently and and safely again and that is so important and that is worth fighting for that's a really good point because a lot of uh, what people think is oh there's a certain tipping point and once we've passed Mm. that we're doomed that's it it's the end yeah it's Um, not helpful the apocalypse but actually it's more like a, a slope where obviously acting faster will definitely be better and will save oh. countless lives, um, both animal and human. But any action at any point is better than no action. And so it, to, to think, oh, we're doomed now, right, that's it, don't have to bother. <laughs> that's, um, <laughs> you know, that's, um, that's a, a total, that's, that's just not true because it's, yeah. it is a, a slope where at any, any action at any point, is is better than nothing and can reduce climate change. Um, yes, and so, I mean, I I really struggled with this. Um, I when I was in sixth form and I was studying uh, actually geography uh, at A level. Um, it I really struggled with this because I was I was just felt guilty for even existing for. Because uh, I was contributing to climate change and destroying yeah. the environment, and I, I really was in a terrible state. And then at one point, I just thought to myself, "Wait a minute! If I'm this miserable and this depressed and this, you know, scared, how am I ever going to make a difference? How am I going to right. get yeah. a job in a, you know, an environmental organisation, or how am I going to?" do some good and, and change the world? How am I going to be sitting here talking to you about this and trying to change people's minds if I'm just frozen in in fear? And and I think one thing that really helped with that was to have some areas of my life that to just have absolutely nothing to do with, um, with ecology, with the environment. They're just totally separate. And when I'm doing those, I can just focus on those. Uh, when I'm at work, I can, you know, talk about the environment. Yeah. And I felt that, I found that really helped. Being, you know, allowing yourself to be human, you know, is, is so, so important. Yeah. And I would say that for any cause, any sort of, any cause, just have something that's totally yours and that has nothing to do with any of the other socio-political things. Just, yeah, that's just, just to be you. Totally agree. Well, a lovely, lovely message, I think, to uh, bring our chat to an end, Jessica. So we've got one last thing to do, um, <clears throat> which is to link all, we link all of our guests together using uh, a single word or a single phrase. Uh, so what uh, I'm going to ask you to do, Jessica, is for 30 seconds, you're going to talk about a word given to uh, you by the previous guest, Ellie Platt, uh, who uh, she was given the word, what was she was given? She was given the word magic to talk for about 30 seconds by Hermione Mao, the first and the episode beforehand. So the word that you've been given for 30 seconds, uh, Jessica, is the word thread. The word thread. Um, and yeah, and if you can tie it into to your love of the world, that wasn't a pun, I just realized. Uh, <laughs> if, you could, if you could tie it to your love of the world, all, all better. So um, whenever you're re- ready, Jessica, so for 30 seconds... When you're ready, you can talk about the word thread. Okay, interesting. 
Um, well, the first thing I would say um, linked to what I was mentioned before is having something that's totally your own. And I spend a lot of my time sewing with thread. Uh, I make my own clothes um, and uh, I often use sort of reclaimed fabric because it's, it's more eco-friendly and that's a really good way of bypassing, you know, fast fashion if you've got time and can be bothered, um, which is not. Yeah. Um, but I also, um, going back to birds as well, a migration for birds and, and indeed for eels, which I didn't have much time to talk about today, but are amazing. Look it up. Is there the thread that connects the whole world and they're what keeps us working together towards a common cause? Um, oh. So that, there we go. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely. Oh, so good. But you know what's so good now is that you get to come up with a word yourself for the next person I speak to. So oh, goodness me. But uh, it's just a lovely little thing that links us all together. It's like a thread. <laughs> it could even be snail. It could even be Moby, you know. <laughs> No, this is uh, oh, glide. Oh, it's almost like thread, so you can take it really, really literally, or you can really take it very abstract. I like that glide. Let me make sure I'm write that down, so I'm not. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm being kind. To the next person. I'm being kind. It's to nice. <laughs> it's nice glide. Okay, folks. So tune in uh, next week to see what my next guest does with the word glide. Right. So Jessica, apart from Moby, who who is hopefully you know, who lived, lived his best life or whatever he's maybe doing now, or maybe he's gone to the, you know, the big shell in the sky by now. I don't know. But apart from giving a shout out to Moby, uh, who else would you like to give a shout out to? <laughs> oh my goodness. What a person or just... anyone you like, you know, uh, group of people. A... Oh God, this is, uh, this is terrible. This is always the hardest part of the podcast. I'm so good, I'm so good with factoids, but this it's <laughs> So I'll give a shout out to uh, my former colleagues at BirdLife um, and all the communities that they work with across the world who are protecting their, their habitats, who are changing their behaviours um, yeah. and actually helping to make a difference. Yeah, excellent. Fantastic. I know that after listening to you, people are definitely going to want to connect with you. So uh, tell us where we can find you on social media. Um, I'm on Twitter at Jessica the Law, and I have the same handle for Instagram, and um, but both are good for um, for factoids. I do a lot of a lot of history and geography and science factoids over on Instagram, um, so that's that's where you're going to get the the greatest wealth of of um, fact based content. Um, I'm also a musician, um, which. Um, and you can listen to my music on all streaming services under Jessica Law. Um, if you want to buy it, Bandcamp is the best place to do that because it gives its artists the majority of the profits from the music. Um, and I think I'm on Facebook as Jessica Law and the Outlaws, uh, which are my backing band. Yeah, and I, I would say some of my music is definitely has an environmental or a, a nature-based message. Uh, some of it is just um, it's just me whinging about my rubbish life. Oh. It's just totally <laughs> different. So, no. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jessica, for joining me. It's been an absolute delight talking to you. And um, yeah, and I hope to get to speak to you in the future. Oh, Thanks definitely. again. I can hear the ghosts of those who Yeah.
much for listening we hope you had fun if you haven't already done so please subscribe so more stories and experiences can drop into your favorite podcast app if you fancy being a guest or have any feedback follow us on twitter at coffee jog pod and send us a dm or you could email coffee and jog at geogramblings.com until next time keep jogging <laughs>